morning, everyone. Christ is risen. Oh, Miss Val leading the charge. I love it. Uh, well, I'm honored to be speaking to you this morning. Pastor Jade is still in Cambodia, so he'll be coming back on Tuesday evening, I believe, if you all would keep him in your prayers. He's ministering, like he said last week, with Pastor Scott Hawksworth, his youth pastor from Texas and one of his spiritual fathers, so keep Pastor in your prayers, but all is well. Things are going well, and they're doing great work. We have heard from him a number of times, all the way from Cambodia. Isn't that amazing? It's pretty cool. So this morning, um, I'm grateful to be really preaching the, the first message for Antioch Church in here, because last week we took quite a bit of time, and Pastor did... Uh, preach the gospel at the end of worship, but really during what would be this time, we just took the time to honor all of you and to kind of consecrate this space and to say thank you to a number of individuals. So today is the first traditional message, and it just so happens that we had plotted a long time ago to preach from John chapter 3 this week. And this is really challenging, actually. Anytime that you're preaching on something that Everybody knows. I mean, John 3.16 is so well known that people stand at the corner of streets with just the reference on, on cardboard signs that just, it doesn't even say the verse. It just says John 3.16, which I think is ironic that we're going to preach the gospel by putting just the reference up there, which implies that they already know what it says, right? So anytime you're dealing with a passage like this, you're coming into all kinds of beliefs that have already been formed around a verse. And there is this temptation to try and make something new and to give something a facelift and, and to, to enhance or to say something that hasn't been said this morning. But I'm going to tell you, I'm probably not going to do any of that for you today. I'm going to do my best to get out of the way and to let the word speak and to preach the gospel my hope and my prayer for us this morning is not to wow you with anything, but and I wrote this down so that I would say it well, but that we might be softened and opened up by the word of God and before him together for the sake of this community in the world around us. So my prayer is that we would be softened and tenderized and opened up by this passage, that it wouldn't just confirm and reaffirm what we think we already know, speaking to myself included, but that we would let this passage open us up to God and that then we would leave this place and be opened up to the world around us. Amen. Can we do that? Uh, we've already prayed many, many times, but I'm going to pray mostly for me. <laughs> so if you guys would join, God, I pray that your spirit, who is already here and is already at work, would work on our minds and our hearts this morning, each and every one of us. God, no matter how much time and energy we have spent with this passage, I pray that something in it would come alive, but not just so that we could be excited about new information, but that we might be, as I have just said, tenderized and softened and eventually transformed into the image of Christ. Lord, I ask that you would quicken my words and quicken our ears. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to begin by reading from John chapter 3. And then there is a reference in John chapter 3 to an old story in the book of Numbers 
that is a really strange story. And I think for us to really engage with John chapter 3, specifically 14, 15, 16, and 17, that we've got to go backwards and we've got to bring some things into sight in front of us to really understand. But let's begin, and I'm going to read very slowly, just John chapter 3, 16 and 17. And I want us to hear the radical nature of what is being said. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This, these two well-known verses come to us in the context of a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, who was inquiring of Jesus. And there are different beliefs. We know that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. And so some people will highlight that saying that Nicodemus didn't want to be seen and it was kind of shameful. He was scared that he might get kicked out. And that might be somewhat true. But what is more likely true is that the Pharisees actually dedicated the evening time to the study of the law and the study of the scriptures because it was time when they would be least interrupted. Especially think about, you know, we've got all of this where we can pretty much, we can control the conditions of our surrounding spaces and our atmospheres. But back then, pre-electricity, pre-a lot of things, they would have had candlelight, and that's just about it if they wanted to read at night. So they didn't have all of the distractions, and they, they really would be set apart and, and consecrated if they spent time in the evening where they wouldn't be distracted. So many believe that that's actually what spurred Nicodemus to come to Jesus at night, is that Nicodemus was spending time, and he was confounded by the Torah. And he was, there's, he, he knew that there was something about Jesus. There was some authority that he had in the realm of the Old Testament. But as we know from reading the story, he didn't exactly know what it was. So he kind of addresses Jesus with this, we know that you're a teacher of God. That's obvious. But explain some of these things to me. And so uh, I want to pick up here, I'm going to skip all over the the chapter of John 3 this morning, and I'm going to go back a handful of verses to verse 11. And Jesus begins saying, I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people, (laughs) that's provocative language, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. This is Jesus, obviously, speaking of himself. And just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. And then he reads as we just did John 3:16. I don't know about you, but that is incredibly random. That he would 
draw in this, and we're about to read it from the book of Numbers 21, but what Jesus knew was that as a Pharisee, obviously Nicodemus would have known the Torah well, and Nicodemus would have readily known exactly what Jesus was talking about when he begins to read this story. And something that we see often throughout the Old Testament, both with Jesus and with Paul, is that they'll do this where they bring in one line of a story or one line of a verse from the prophets or something. And what they're doing is they're drawing on a whole wealth of information to the context of the crowd that they're speaking to. But often what happens is they reinterpret. Paul and Jesus are notorious for doing this. They bring in a line that they know will draw on something, but then they reinterpret it in light of Jesus. And that's exactly what happens here. So if you have your Bibles, let's go back to the book of Numbers, chapter 21, and we're going to read this strange story. So the context here is the people of God have just been delivered from Egypt. They've been set free. They have come through and they are now wandering in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. So they're told, right? Because they spend 40 years wandering. We're going to pick up here in chapter 21, verse 4. And it says, they traveled from Mount Hor, which the irony there is that in Hebrew, mountain is Hor. So they traveled from the mountain called Mountain along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. And you guys think that the Bible does not have humor and irony. There is so much. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses. And they said, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread and there is no water. And we detest this miserable food. Once again, there's irony because this translation says bread, but what they actually say is there's no food and this food that we're eating is awful. Does that not sound like us or what? My daughter is only five months old, but I am sure that uh, there will be many, many of those moments. Dad, you never give me this. And when you do, I hate it. (laughs) But you never do this. And when you do... Thank you. Thank you. So the people are wandering here and they're becoming obviously impatient, right? And they begin murmuring and complaining. And I want to speak, this is an aside for us who are in a season of transition. And this has been an exciting time where a lot of wonderful things have happened. We're in our second week in a new building. But I will tell you that grumbling and complaining are imminent They are crouching at our door, grumbling and complaining, and I I am preaching to myself right now, are crouching at our door that we might have to go and move our car from in front of Jade Dragon, and we might have to wait to use the restroom. I mean, I'm making light of this, but these are real inconveniences, and these are the very types of things that set us off into grumbling and murmuring and complaining. And I will say, what is interesting is that in Scripture, God does not always punish grumbling and complaining. Do you know when he doesn't punish it? When we do it to him. When we complain directly to the one who can do something about it. That's called lament. That's called intercession. That's called prayer. We're allowed to complain to God. Do you hear what I'm saying? (laughs) We're not allowed 
to complain to one another about things that only God can change. This is what got Israel in trouble time and time. Okay, I'm going to keep coming. I'm going to come at you. You're only like five feet away. I'm going to come at you, y'all. Um, but this is this really has nothing to do with John 3.16, but it has a lot to do with this numbers story. And I just think that we as a people must be cautious in this time in particular that we don't allow minor inconveniences to eclipse what God has entrusted to us. I mean, look around, guys. If we have to move our car and wait on the bathroom, it's okay. It really is. And I'm preaching to myself, okay? I really am. So what is incredibly odd here. Let's keep reading. So they spoke against God and they spoke against Moses and they said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There's no bread and there is no water and we detest this miserable food. So then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them and they bit the people and many Israelites died. Lord, we just thank you for your word. How many, you guys want to pray uh, that scripture right now that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever? I don't, I don't know if you do in this moment, right? So then the people came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. So pray that the Lord will take these snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put on a pole. This guy's this capture how strange this is, right? This is the God who just a few chapters ago, actually in in Deuteronomy, but not long ago, chronologically just told them, don't make idols. And God says, make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look on it and live. So Moses obeyed and made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake, he looked at the bronze snake and lived. This is so strange. And it's especially strange when you think, so when we read in John, Jesus brings this in and he applies it to himself. And we go, ah, he's talking about the cross or he's talking about the ascension. But for literally hundreds of years, they had no further context for this story. God sent snakes to bite the people right after he told them, don't make idols. And he says, okay, I'm not going to cause the snakes to go away like you prayed, but what I am going to do is I'm going to provide a means of healing. And I'm going to do it in a way that seems awfully like creating an idol. This is so strange. The Old Testament is full of these stories that really don't seem to make a lot of sense. So what we're going to do is we're going to try and reinterpret this in light of Christ. A few things for us to note. One, God doesn't always punish complaining. Like I said, sometimes he encourages it. But as we determined, God wants us to complain directly to him because that is what turns into prayer, okay? Number two, God is training Israel how to be a people that are led and governed by him and that are wholly dependent on him. And that's gonna play a big role here in just a second. So even when his punishment is specific, It is purposeful. So then we, of course, have to ask the question, why snakes? How many of you hate snakes? The Kinnearums have a snake. And for that, I don't go to their house. (laughs) Or they used to have a snake. Do you still have the snake? Okay, you still have the snake. Yep. I hate snakes. And in Egyptian culture, snakes 
were representative of some of their gods. So this is so odd. And I believe that there are a few things that we can take away with this, away from this. One, that the serpents seem to be significant. That the poison in their mouth might represent the poison in the mouths of the people as they are complaining and grumbling against God, but not to God, one to another. This portrays their sin as a sickness that is infecting their whole being. And now just for, for a, a quick theology lesson, so many, 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 Dan is going to be maybe the only person in the room that appreciates this, and he already knows this, but many, many years ago, many, many moons ago, right, there was a split in the church between the Eastern Church and the Western Church, pre-Protestant Reformation. So then at that time, there was the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church, and one of the main divisions between them was how they viewed sin. The Eastern Church, and to this day, they still view sin as a sickness, as an infection, kind of like the venom of snakes, that requires us to then be in need of healing. The Western Church, Roman Catholicism, and then thereby us, Protestantism, tends to view sin more as guilt. And we tend to picture sin as as something in a courtroom, a, a wrong act that we need to be acquitted of. But what is portrayed way more frequently in scripture is that sin is a sickness. It's like a venom that gets in us and we almost can't help but live by that. We can't help but die because we have been bitten by sin and we have been infected. And now you're beginning, I'm imagining, you're beginning to piece together how this really fits with John 3, 16, right? That, that the portrayal of the serpents coming into the camp is not arbitrary. That God is speaking to them. Your sin is like an infection. And you are infected and in need of healing against your grumbling and complaining against the God who just delivered you out of Egypt, Another thing that we can learn is that sometimes God delivers us out of, and other times God provides for us from within. And if you're anything like me, no matter what he does, you're going to wish he did the opposite. That when he delivers us out, you're like, man, God, I really liked it here. It would have been nice if you could have just provided for me in that season. And when he chooses like them, they, they want something else, right? They want the snakes to go away, probably because like me, they get scared just by seeing them. They want God to take the snakes away. And God says, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to provide healing for you from within. And this, this message that I spoke in the Advent series about hope in an unpredictable God, guys, if you read the Old Testament, even just one chapter, you cannot help but notice how unpredictable God is. And when we want him to deliver us, oftentimes he provides for us right in the middle. And when we want to stay and we want him to provide, oftentimes he says, you know what's best for you and the community around you? is that I deliver you out of. And we never can predict when that's going to happen. And that is what it is like in following after a living and active God. Another point is that God was purposeful in having them construct and lift up a serpent. Looking up at the serpent reminds them of their sin. And this manner of healing was a clear indication that God was providing for their healing. Looking up at a snake and being healed from venom 
in your body is not exactly what we would call a natural homeopathic type of healing, right? There's no confusion if you get healed from a snake bite by looking up at a snake that something more is happening. And God is teaching and training his people that he is the one who will provide manna in hev- from heaven for them to eat for 40 years. Meat by ravens, water from a rock, two different times. God is the God who provides. And it is risky and it requires faith and it requires trust, but he is the one who provides. And furthermore, the serpent that they looked upon was outwardly like a snake, but without venom in its mouth. Let that sink in for just a second, remembering that Jesus draws upon this story, that they are healed by looking at a serpent that looks like a serpent, but does not have the venom in its mouth. We're going to hit that a little bit more here in just a second. Eventually, this serpent became an idol. It appears once more in scripture in the book of 2 Kings. And when it does, King Hezekiah sees that the priests are actually lighting incense to this bronze snake that has made its way in the history of Israel for generations. And he takes it and burns it and breaks it and burns it and gets rid of the snake because he recognizes that what God meant as a sign, they had indeed turned into an idol. They had turned it into an idol. And there, there is a fine line between memorials and idols. And we're not, that, that's not really the crux of this message, so we're not going to go there. Uh, but I'll just leave that with you. <laughs> um, so getting back to John 3.16, we remember that Jesus is speaking with Nicodemus, who's a wealthy Pharisee. And they were more familiar with the Torah than anyone else. So he would have readily known this serpent story as soon as Jesus said, and like the serpent lifted up in the wilderness, Nicodemus would have known exactly what he was talking about. So Jesus says, the son of man must be lifted up, which is one of the more complex images in scripture. That that scripture is full of metaphors and metaphors have a variety of meanings in different depths and levels of meanings. And nothing short of that is happening right here. So what is happening when we look up at Jesus as they looked up to the serpent in the wilderness? When we look upon Jesus on the cross, we contemplate the one who has provided. Just as we mentioned a minute ago, the one Yahweh who provided a snake to be looked at and it would provide healing for the people. Seemingly so random and so arbitrary, but it had to have been yet another way that God was reinforcing to his people, I will provide for you. I delivered you out of Egypt. I provided the Ten Commandments. I have provided manna in the wilderness. I have provided provided fire by night. I mean, guys, so many things God is speaking to them because he desires them to follow him. So when we look on the cross, we cannot help but see a God who is willing to provide for us. We also see a reflection of ourselves and our sin 
that put Jesus on the cross. As we just mentioned, when they looked up at the snake, they would have known this is a bronze snake. It's not actually a poisonous snake. And in many ways, there is a metaphor there for Jesus, that Jesus was fully human. I am not saying that Jesus would not fully human. If I did say that, you should leave and not come back to this church, okay? (laughs) Jesus was fully human, but he took on the curse of our sin. Our sin was not in him. That Jesus, as he was lifted up, it reminds us that it was our sin, not his own, that put him there. And quite literally, I think sometimes we hear phrases like that. There's a song, is it how deep the father's love for us that says, it was my sin that held him there. And it's too easy for us to individualize this and go, it's, it's my pride, it's my greed, it's my lust. So God had to send Jesus to die on the cross because that was the only way it could work. And there's some validity to that kind of an atonement theory. But what really is important is that quite literally, the sin of the systemic sin of the Jewish people and the Roman Empire really did put Jesus on the cross. So what do I mean by that? Jesus came and he preached a different way. As Pastor Dan, it's one of his themes and he preached that message last year. And it's a wonderful message that God has a way of doing things. And Jesus came and he lived and preached that way and it threatened the religious structures and it threatened the empire And they killed Jesus for it. So quite literally, the systems of systemic sin that are still around us killed Jesus. Like that, it is important that we don't trivialize it to think that my individual sins alone put Jesus on the cross. That quite literally, God sent his son into the earth and he died because the message he preached threatened the powers that be. That's a huge deal that Jesus didn't come just to teach us how to get to heaven when we die. Jesus came to show us a new way to live. And when we follow that way of living, we pose a threat to the powers and principalities that are at work around us. And so if there's none of that going on, how faithful are we really living to the way Jesus has called us to live? That is something we must contemplate. When we look on Jesus we also find the means and the mediator of our healing. Now, it's interesting, in the Old Testament passage, they cry out to Moses to cry out to God, and God responds to Moses for the people, right? There's this mediator thing happening. So God tells Moses, you make a snake and lift it up. So Moses is the mediator, and the thing he's holding is the means of healing. In Christ, he is both. Jesus alone is the mediator. There is no other mediator for us and for our salvation. Jesus comes both as the means of salvation and the one who mediates our salvation. And lastly, when we look upon Jesus, the ascended one, we see him seated at the right hand of the Father. This is when I mentioned to go about the metaphors that there are multiple meanings of Jesus being lifted up. It speaks to both his literal being lifted up on a cross 
on Golgotha. It speaks to his resurrection, a figurative being lifted up from the grave, right? And then it also speaks to the ascension. And the ascension reminds us that Jesus is still in authority, that Jesus is living at the right hand of the Father. It's not that literally there is a throne at the right hand of Father as much as that represents the place of power and authority. That Jesus and his way, his message, what we read in the Gospels, Jesus is still empowering his people to live that way here in the earth today. So when we talk about Jesus being lifted up, it's all of these things wrapped into one image. And that is what's amazing. Jesus, in one verse in John chapter 3, brings one line in from an Old Testament story, and all of this is what he means. And we wonder why people were constantly confused by Jesus's one-liners, right? We've had 2,000 years to think this stuff through and to learn and to study and to pray and as the people of God to explore together. No wonder Nicodemus couldn't get it because Jesus is expanding everything that Nicodemus thought about the salvation of God. In the Old Testament, salvation was temporary for a select group of people, right? In the Old Testament, Jesus delivers them from Egypt, but he delivers a specific people, and those people eventually died, and none of those people went into the promised land. In the New Testament, Jesus takes the vision and expands it infinitely. And Jesus says, my salvation is for eternal purposes. It is not temporary. My salvation for you will never die, and it begins today. And it's not just for you, people of Israel, as he's speaking to Nicodemus, which makes it even more complicated. It's for everyone. It's for the Romans who are going to put me on the cross. My salvation is for them as well. And that is part of the reason Nicodemus just couldn't wrap his mind around what Jesus is saying. So like Nicodemus this morning, as we confront John 15, 16, and 17, How are we born again? To be born again is to be changed in such a way that can only be described as rebirth. This version uh, that we read, and most of us know who believe on him, is kind of the, the general gist of the translations that we know, whether it's King James or NIV. But what it really should be translated as is believe into that we believe into Jesus, that we, we take our belief, if it were a tangible thing, which it is not, and we place it into Christ. We put it into Jesus. In other words, we're putting all of our eggs in one basket to go along with the idiom, that we are saying, Jesus, if you're not real, and if you aren't who you say you are, then everything in my life is going to spiral out of control because I'm putting everything, I'm investing all of who I am. I'm investing the way I see the world, the way I see myself, the rules that I follow, the principles I live by, all of it I'm investing in you. It's not just mental assent. That Nicodemus comes to Jesus and one of the first things he says is, I know that you're from God. But, but what about all these other things? And Jesus says, believe on me or believe into me, which encompasses believe that I am who I say that I am, believe that I am the son of God, believe that I have come into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world, and believe that if you follow after my way, 
this whole world will be changed because it will be oriented around my kingdom. And that is the message of Jesus Christ. And that is what he's talking about when he says, believe on me, believe in me. When we preach the gospel, we're preaching nothing short of God created a world that he loved and man rebelled and sinned against him. And immediately God begins a journey of redemption with his people that is still continuing today. And God has been, I mean, think about just your own self, how patient God has been with you as he attempts to redeem you every day. Every day I am in need of redemption. When we preach the gospel, we are preaching nothing short of God providing his son, not just as a ransom and not just as one who wipes our guilt and sin away, but also as a healer, as one who when we look upon him, the venom and the poison of sin inside us starts to die and be reversed. Because the point is not going to heaven when we die. The point is coming into the life of God, which happens immediately when we believe into him. That this is all about us coming into a form of new life, a form of rebirth. So this morning, what are we to do with this? And what might God be saying to us in this one very familiar story and in this other very odd story? One thing is that God's provision for us is often very unpredictable, but it is always sufficient for its intended purpose. God's provision for us is unpredictable, but it is sufficient for his intended purpose. So when God says, there's no food, I'm going to send manna, manna might not be what they wanted, but manna was the neutral food that they needed to work the tastes and the appetite they had for Egypt out of their system. That when God provides for us, it's not arbitrary and it's not meaningless in even how he does it. That God's provision is always sufficient for his intended purposes to us and for us. Sometimes God delivers us and other times he provides for us. We've already talked about that. But then also... We must recognize that God's love is not just for us, that it is for the world, as John 3.16 says. One of the things I wrestled with this week was just how should we feel when we read or when we hear John 3.16? And I think that there are multiple things that should be going on in each and every one of us when we hear that. I think that there is a security and that there is a joy, that there is a humility and that there are all these wonderful feelings. But I do think that there is some other feeling that should be accompanied when we hear John 3.16. And I think that feeling is conviction. I think that we should be convicted when we primarily think of John 3.16 and we just think about ourselves. I think that when we hear John 3.16, it should spur us to think about those people that we are so tempted to grumble and murmur and complain against and think, God could use me to be the one to bring them into salvation. And God loved the world so much that yes, he couldn't help but save me, but he will stop short of nothing to pursue them 
And those that we think in our minds are our enemies, I'm not going to help you with that. I'm sure you can all name a few, whether they're big figures that we would all know or personal people in your life. Those are the people that God came to save. And those are the people that God wants to use you to bring to him. And this is not new. Like I said, there's very little new here, but I don't think it's coincidental that our second Sunday in this facility, that we are being confronted with the gospel. And that, that was long before a couple of weeks ago, hey, let's preach on John 3.16. That didn't happen that way. I believe that God is saying, I am adding unto this people some people that are like you and some people that are not like you. But they are all people of the world that I created that I will stop at nothing to redeem. And if you won't do it, Antioch Church, I'll bring another church in who will. I, I really believe that this is convicting for me very, very much this week. The ways that I hear things like John 3.16 and I immediately go, God, you love me so much. God, you love me so much. And what God is saying, he said, of course, and you've known that for 30 years but there are so many people who you don't love that I do. And Antioch, I think that is one of the words for us this morning, that God is going to bring people into this place that he cares so much about, who think differently than we do, who look differently than we do, who have different experiences and different pasts and different futures than we do. And if he can't use us to touch them, he will use someone. And I pray that that comes across to you how the Lord wants it to come across to you. Um, but I know that that has struck me this week. And I want to read just one last time. This is a very a short message. Uh, and maybe I think what would be good is if we closed our eyes for this. I'm going to read this from the, the version of the message, Eugene, uh, Eugene Peterson's translation. This is how much God loved the world that he gave his son, his one and only son. And this is why, so that no one need be destroyed. By believing in him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. God did not go through all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it is. He came to help to put the world right again. He came to help to put the world right again. God, I pray that this simple message from this so familiar passage would awaken us as is part of our mission. God, I pray that we would be a people who are awakened both to your love for us and to your love for our neighbors and even more our enemies, those that are extremely difficult for us to love. God, we ask this morning that you would expand our hearts. God, I pray that you would open us up to the point where it hurts, where we are so vulnerable before you that we can't help but love the people who we do not love right now. Or if we love them in our hearts, we don't love them with our actions. God, I pray that your love would transform us, that we would see every action that you have committed throughout history as an overflow of your love toward your good creation. God, I pray that today, as we come to this table, 
that we would not, like the people of Israel, wish that you had given us something different. But God, I pray that we would remember you and that we would celebrate you in this bread and in this juice. And I pray that we would encounter you in this space and allow your spirit to touch and transform us for the people around us. In Jesus' name, amen.